I am so thankful to be able to share with you today, continuing in our series, Following in the Steps of Jesus. Today, we're going to take a closer look at Luke 10, the context around it. We're going to look at the text itself, and we're also going to look at an application uh, from that text. But I want to, first of all, begin with some background from the Old Testament. Last week, we talked about the background in the Old Testament to loving God. Today, we talk about the background to loving your neighbor. This text in Leviticus 19 is a very interesting one because it gives us a perspective on the way the Israelites live that we may not have thought of before. We often think of the kind of laws that God gave Israel was to them alone and for them to just be kind to each other and pay no attention to those around them. And they were to only follow God among themselves and not worry about other people that might come to them like foreigners. But we found out last week that's not the case, and we're going to find out that's not the case this week as well. So here in this text, the, the writer speaking from God says, you are not to defraud or rob your neighbor. Now we want to keep in mind this word for neighbor, because it's going to become more important as we get into our Luke text and we're going to see in Luke that neighbor is defined in a way that maybe we wouldn't think of neighbor. Because for us, we normally think of neighbor as someone that lives in our neighborhood, someone that lives close to us. But we're going to find that God has a different way of looking at that word. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in the front of the blind, but fear your God. You can see that God is concerned here about how we treat other people, especially those that don't have the same opportunities that we do, that haven't been blessed as we have. We are to be considerate for those whose life experience is not as ours. And three times in this text, he says, Ani Adonai, I am the Lord. It's the same phrase that's used when God talks about being the I am with Moses at the burning bush. In other words, this is an authoritative word from God. Further, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. This is God explaining what he means by justice. When he talks about justice, he doesn't just mean me and my rights. It means the way we treat other people primarily and how we look at them and what we do to take care of them and look after them in a fair sort of way, especially when it comes to justice. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Again, Ani Adonai, I am the Lord. God says, I want you to be ever vigilant about being aware of your neighbor's situation and how it is that you treat them. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. This is the idea of accountability that comes over into the church family of God. Accountability is critically important because it holds us to a standard and allows us to live in a way that other people encourage us to have the same kind of standard that God has. Do not seek re revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And we learned last week that that anyone among your people doesn't just mean Israelites. It means foreigners. It means other people that had joined along with Israel that had maybe converted to, to, uh, to being a, a Jewish believer, whatever it is. And again, I am the Lord. This is an authoritative word from the Lord. 
Now, let's move from this background in the Old Testament to the context of Luke 10. I'm always interested anytime I read verses in Scripture when I am trying to understand them, am I, am I understanding them faithfully within the context, within the meaning of the context? For instance, I could take a letter that you have written to someone or that I have might written to someone, and I could pull out a word or a phrase, and I could totally misrepresent what the meaning of the letter is. So in order to understand fully what the writer is saying, we have to look at the material that is around it before and after. Well, just before Jesus has this, uh, this encounter with this man that comes to him, the Bible says at that time, Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. And he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Jesus often uses this idea of the little children when he does teaching. And by little children, he doesn't necessarily mean infants or babies or four or five-year-olds. He means people that are sincerely and honestly trying to follow God. People that have an open heart, that are able to hear the word of God, whose heart is not calloused, whose ears are not closed, who are not biased and prejudiced already toward the way that they think about the world and the people in the world. So God says, Jesus says to the Father, I'm so thankful that you've given people, you've got people around me that are willing to live and to learn and to grow. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And let me say, it's what God continues to be pleased to do. He is looking for little children all around that are willing to have open hearts and to follow in the steps of Jesus the way he intends us to. All things, Jesus said, have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So there is this unity that exists that we often pray about. Jesus living in the unity of the Holy Spirit, reigning in the unity of the Holy Spirit with God the Father in, in God's kingdom. And in that environment, not everybody gets a revelation. It's only those people that God allows Jesus to reveal himself to. And that's why Jesus came. He came to reveal himself to the little children that were able to hear and to understand, who were not blinded by the wisdom of the world. So he then turns to his disciples and says privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Yes, the prophets foretold the coming of Jesus. Yes, the prophets foretold the coming messianic kingdom and the revelation of it. And Jesus preached that, you know, the kingdom of heaven now has come near. It's available not just to Israel, but it's available to everyone. And he says there were people in the past that knew this was coming, but yet didn't get to physically see it as they were. And so now they are able with the eyes of little children to see Jesus and what he is doing. So this is the context now. This is what's going on. Jesus is talking to the Father. He's, he's talking to his disciples. And he's talking about the kind of heart that one needs to have in order to be a true follower of Jesus. So now comes to him an expert in the law. And I think the writer says that with some bit of, of uh, sarcasm, if you want to say it. 
and he stands up to test Jesus. A common experience that Jesus had in his ministry was being tested. There were always those that wanted to try to prove him to be no Messiah, that wanted to prove him to be a false teacher, that wanted to expose him for being an error. There were those people all around the community in which Jesus ministered. So this man has an agenda. He comes to Jesus with an agenda. And he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that sounds like a good question. It's a question that's asked from time to time in the Bible. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? There are people all around Jesus that ask this question. And so Jesus responds to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, quoting from Deuteronomy 6 that we read last week and love your neighbor as yourself, quoting from Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. And truer words have never been spoken. If at our very core, we choose to love God and to love others as God loves them, we will be way down the path toward following Jesus. If all of our life decisions are made based on those two ideas, we're going to see today that it truly will bring us to a place of blessing, to a place of peace. But look at this next verse. But he wanted to justify himself. That is so true all over America today, all over the world. We're always looking to justify ourselves, aren't we? We want to be proved right. When I was in graduate school, the first pastoral counseling class that I took, the professor said, I want you to understand about people who come to you seeking counsel. He said, most of the time, they are coming wanting feelings reconciled rather than problems solved. And this is true of this man. He's not coming to Jesus wanting to learn something. He's not coming to Jesus wanting to, to, uh, to find out something that he's not doing or he has, doesn't already know. He has a very closed mind and a closed heart. He just wants Jesus to affirm what he's already doing. And that's so true with people today. We want to feel like what we're doing is right. We don't want to be proved wrong. We don't want to have to go through the agonizing process of changing our life. We want to stay on the same path that we are on. But often that is a path, as Jesus explains it, that leads to destruction. So look, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, with the idea that Jesus is going to help to justify him. Well, in reply, Jesus said, in other words, Jesus is going to tell him a story. This is the way Jesus often tries at least to give the opportunity for somebody to learn. Remember the story of Nathan and David. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had Uriah murdered. He told lies about all of it. And one day Nathan comes to him with a story and David at least had an open enough heart for that story to move him so much that he fell on his knees before God in repentance. And that's what we have in Psalm 51. Well, in this text, Jesus said, let me tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I want to show you a picture. You can see in this picture, down in the valley is Jerusalem. And up in those mountains, those mountains are totally barren. 
It's like a wasteland almost. It, it's a very arid, dry place. But that's the road that one would have to take to get to Jericho. When you came from Jerusalem, there's about a half a mile of elevation change going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And there are all kinds of turns and there are all kinds of places in these you can see here where someone could be hiding. Let me give you a close-up picture. You can see the kind of terrain that one has to walk on. This is the road that exists today that people often take a path that they hike from Jerusalem to Jericho, about 18 or 19 miles. But it's on this very isolated, barren sort of place that these people attack this man and they take everything he has and they leave him for dead. But then look, a priest happened to be going down the road. Hallelujah, somebody from the temple, somebody from the church is coming along and surely they're gonna see this man and help him. But he passed by on the other side. Well, good, okay, so a priest, he, he can't help him, maybe he's busy, but here comes a Levite. That's the tribe from which the priest came. So surely he will help this man. He's a very devoted man. He knows the, the, the verse about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He knows the verse about loving your neighbor as yourself. But he too passes by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. There've been a lot of misunderstandings about the Samaritans. The biggest disagreement between Samaritans and Jewish people was over the place to worship. We see this in John chapter four, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman. They believe Gerizim was the place to worship. The Jews believe that the temple in Jerusalem was the place to worship. The Samaritans saw themselves, they, they, they came from the tribe of Joseph. Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh were the tribes of which they came. The Samaritans were people that mostly stayed in Israel when the captivity occurred. So after the captivity occurred and the Jews left, the Samaritans felt like the Jews then lost their way, lost their ability to understand truly who God was. And so they see themselves as God's purer and more righteous people. So this agreement exists and still exists today. However, I would say to you that today, most of the Samaritan people live in Nablus, which is a town about 65 or 70 miles north, almost directly north of Jerusalem. It's the place where Jacob's well is that we visit today. And there are only about 800 Samaritans that still exist there in that area today. But anyway, the Samaritans were a people that the Jewish people strongly disagreed with. And they saw them as being in the wrong religiously. So this Samaritan, someone that was hated or not looked, not respected at all by Jewish people, comes along, he sees this man, and he takes pity on him. And furthermore, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, put the man on his own donkey, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. This man sidelined whatever business that he had, and often there would be business things going on, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, two areas that were pretty well populated in those days and places where business was carried out. So no doubt he has a reason for being on that road, but yet he sets aside his plans and he stays overnight to take care of this man. And look what happens next. The next day, he takes out two denarii. Now, a denarius in Jesus' day was about a day's wages. So two whole day's wages he takes out and he gives them to the innkeeper. And he said, I want you to look after this man. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
and I'm guessing there were extra expenses. This man had empathy and sympathy and pity for this man that had been harmed. He took out of his personal time and schedule. He, he gave up whatever, whatever schedule he had in order to look after this man. He spent time with him personally at the end and the next day paid someone else to take care of him as well. So Jesus' question is, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? It's not a hard question. It's really a question that has an assumed answer, right? The expert in the law replied, the one, notice his phrase, the one who had mercy on him. Loving our neighbors means that our schedules may get interrupted. Loving our neighbors means that we have to be able to express pity and empathy for other people. Inter, uh, dealing with our neighbor means that there are times when we have to extend mercy rather than judgment on another person. And there's any number of things that this man could have said. He could have said, I don't know why in the world you're out here by yourself or why in the world you, you didn't have a better protection with you or why in the world you did whatever we want to fill in the blank with that with. He could have been highly critical and said, you know, you got what you deserved, but he didn't say that. He stopped and helped him. And Jesus says to this man, Go and do likewise. So we learn from this story that when this man is trying to be justified about who his neighbor is and what he's doing toward his neighbor, he's thinking, you know, I am so kind to my neighbors. I love the people in my neighborhood. I, I, I you know, around Thanksgiving, we invite friends over from our neighborhood to our house. He could have been thinking any number of things like that. But Jesus is trying to expand his understanding of who one's neighbor is. One's neighbor, more likely than not, will be someone who is not, does not live in your neighborhood, who does not look like you, is not from the same family you are, may not even have the same religious beliefs that you are. Your neighbor could literally be anyone that God brings you into contact with. So we have the Old Testament background. We have the context of these verses, Jesus praying to God and talking about the need to be open-hearted as little children. Then we have the text itself where Jesus teaches this man that he is in no way justified for the way he's living, but rather he needs to open his heart to other people as being his neighbor, and he needs to have a different attitude than those that he works with about people. But then last, I want to take a brief application time from Romans 13, verse 8, beginning. Paul says, let no debt, and we could also say let no obligation remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. I find this to be interesting language that Paul would couch the understanding of loving one's neighbor, loving one another in the terms of a debt that we owe. And think about it though. Think of the huge debt that we owed God because of our sinfulness and our wrongdoing. We owed a debt that we could not pay. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the man that had the huge debt, but yet his master completely forgave the debt. And then he goes out and demands a few dollars from someone that worked for him or that he had loaned money to. Jesus is saying through Paul here that we need to understand that because of what God has done for us, we have an obligation to love other people. And it's not the kind of have-to obligation, but it's one that we gladly do. It's like taking care of family members. Yes, it's an obligation, but we do it with love. We do it because we have been blessed to have this family. 
And then he says, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. That is a broad, encompassing statement. The law, as you know, if you've read Leviticus or any other part of it, or just the law of God in general, is a large number of commands and duties that God has called us to. But he says, you know what? If you learn how to love another person the way God loves them, then you're doing really at your heart all of what the law requires. So the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Take just a moment, take a deep breath and consider the broad ramifications of that. Paul is saying, if you actually love your neighbor, you're fulfilling most all of the other commands that God has given us. Because if I love my neighbor, I'm not going to have a relationship with his wife. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal from him. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to take something that doesn't belong to me that's his. But again, the neighbor part doesn't just mean my neighbor who lives beside me, but it means all of the people in my sphere of influence, all the people I come into contact with. It really means everyone in the world. Love does no harm to a neighbor. That's directly from Leviticus 19. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Following in the steps of Jesus means that as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, I always think about first, before I do anything else, what is the loving response? What is the loving thing to say? What's the loving thing to do? What's the loving way to live in that situation? I must get beyond the idea that helping someone that I don't know is an inconvenience. I must get beyond the idea that helping someone that I don't agree with or maybe is even an enemy is, is somehow off the track of what I should be doing. God has called us to be his person in the world and God literally loves everyone he has created. And he's calling us to have the ears and the eyes of little children as we follow in the steps of Jesus. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we so thank you for the blessings you give us. Father, we are deeply convicted by this kind of text that we read today because we know so often our definition of our neighbor, our understanding of love has been so narrow and it's been so, so limited. So today, Lord, help us to have our hearts opened, our eyes opened, our ears opened. Help us to be the kind of people that, that pay attention to every opportunity you bring our way to love and care for other people. Lord, we thank you that you've called us not just to our own nation or not just to our own people, but you've called us to all nations. And today, Lord, let us be also not only great command people, but great commission people who are willing as we go to share the good news of Jesus with everyone that we meet. We pray this prayer through Jesus, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.